As we continue to stand, let us turn to God's holy word. Uh, First, our Old Testament reading, and this will be our preaching text for this morning in Isaiah chapter 45. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I, have call, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then let us turn over to... Our New Testament reading in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, this text that many of us are familiar with as far as our need to uh, obey the lawful uh, laws of civil government. But what I want you to notice especially is that that's based ultimately on God being in such control of this world that there is no government that exists except by his great plan. His will, His purpose. So Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, continuing to read God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good behavior, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and our minds and our lives to your truth. Help us as those who trust in your Son to grow in our confidence 
in you, in trusting in your promises and in your ability to carry out those promises for us in Jesus Christ. And if there are any here who do not know you, we pray that they will come to see what a glorious God you are and their need for you and to turn to you in the way you have commanded from this holy text of your word that we have read just now. Strengthen your servant here this morning to speak only that which is your true gospel and your true word, and to do so in the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for all true gospel ministers this day, that they will open up their mouths and speak forth the true good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Pastor Hard. We pray you will watch over and strengthen him in his ministry as you work through him to build up this congregation in your holy word. Now, Lord, we pray all of this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for allowing me to come back and share God's word with you. Uh, this has been a, a pleasure for me in my retirement. Um, I was going to try to take just 10 Sundays, and Anna said, no, if you, if you do too many, why would you have retired, you know? So I was going to do 10 Sundays. It's 20 is where it's set, and it's all booked up for the summer, and it was really quite amazing, really, uh, what the need is uh, so that our ministers can either go to a conference or have some special event they're, they're working on, like this last week uh, here with Pastor Hard, or even just do a vacation and get away. You really need someone who can come and, and fill in. So that's, that, that's been a real pleasure in retirement because I know that, that sometimes it really does enable the, the pastors who are still full-time in their work uh, to be able to, to get what they need there uh, as far as a break. Well, we're looking at God's providence this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, first uh, our actual confession of uh faith for a few minutes as part of my introduction, and then I want to demonstrate how every point there is either explicit or implicit in this text in Isaiah. But let me just say the doctrine of providence, I can boil down in this way, that, that God has a plan, and that plan includes everything that will ever happen, ever has happened. Uh, it includes everything that takes place in God's universe that nothing has ever taken God by surprise. And I know that immediately the, the problem of evil comes up for us, doesn't it? And um, if, you, if you try to work that out entirely, you will err and get away from some aspect of God's word or other. Uh, there's a lot we don't understand in regard to how uh, God has included in his plan all that takes place, including the evil, and yet the evil doesn't come from him at all. It comes from fallen human beings. It comes from the devil and the demons, and yet never does it take God by surprise. And that's to comfort us because that means he has the solution, and at the end, he's going to win, and those who are in his son, Jesus Christ, we are going to win. doesn't matter what, what evil whether moral evil or natural disaster or just plain individual problems we have, our God is never taken by surprise and he's never out of control. And one of the things I think important in our chapter on God's providence and our confession, it ends on this note, 
that at the heart of God's plan is Jesus Christ, and at the heart of Jesus Christ is us, his church, for whom he died and rose again. That means that in spite of the fact that we're sinners uh, and we're saved only by grace, this big plan had us at its very center. Isn't that amazing? Think of how finite we are, even if we don't consider our sin, and then throw our sin into the whole mix, and how unworthy we are that God created all things so he would glorify his son and glorify us who are in his son. He had you and me in mind in Christ when he created the universe and all the, all the things that take place is a very complex, from our point of view, this is an incredibly complex plan that, that goes all the way back to the very beginning. We'll go until Christ comes again when it all gets wrapped up. But you and I are at the very heart of that. Our historic reform confessions and catechisms make these incredible claims that I believe are clearly found in God's word regarding God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of his covenant people, Jehovah or Yahweh, the great I am. And uh, turn with me to, I, pay, I think it's page uh, 851 in your hymnal, in the back of your hymnal, looking at the doctrine of God's of providence. Chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession. If you've never studied the content of that and looked up the verses um, that you, you will find in you know, our more full versions give us the text that it's based on, that's a Bible study you really want to do. What comfort there is and encouragement for the believer. But I'm just going to read four of these paragraphs. Number one, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God's in charge. It's all going to result in him being glorified forever, and as he's going to tell us, as they're going to tell us on down, we're going to be glorified in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Number two, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, now this, is, this is kind of philosophical language here on purpose, kind of technical language here. Uh, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, it's very difficult, as I said before, how do we understand the providence of God and evil being part of the history of creation? I think that in, in our Reformed faith, as we worked on the, the verses that talk about God's sovereignty and that has governed our thinking. We come as close to it as you can get. But again, this doesn't answer that question 100%. We, we, we won't have the 100% answer until later. I think in heaven, we're going to look back and say, wow, I'm, I'm amazed I couldn't see it more clearly before. But that will be from the state of glory. But what this tells us is that though God is in charge of all things, that doesn't mean he does everything directly himself that uh, he usually works through 
second causes. In other words, and it gives us examples, necessarily, freely, or contingently. So let's say I was on a tall building and uh, I decided to jump off. That would be the freely. That would be human responsibility. If I fell and, and died, I can't stand before God and say, God, why did you cause me to die from uh, uh, jumping off the tall building? Well, I, he made me in his image originally, and I'm a, I'm a free moral agent in that sense. Same thing true of the, the angels, therefore the demons and, and the devil. And God has guaranteed what's going to happen, but there are real choices we make even though God's determined all things from all things in the beginning. We don't know exactly how it all fits together, but he, you know, God's not responsible for the sin of Satan or for your sin or mine. We did make our decision. Necessarily, I jump off the tall building. What necessarily happens? Do I stay there floating in the air? Do I go up? No, I go down what we call the law of gravity, a natural uh, law, a way God made the universe. And so God does work through how he has set up the world as far as the natural uh, uh, universe itself, the physical universe. And then contingently, let's say they're washing windows and there's a, uh, there's a, 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 a platform only 30 feet below uh, where I've jumped. I thought I was gonna jump off and die and I break both legs, but I live. And that was contingent on something I didn't know about, but God did know about. And so that's what, you know, so when we say God's in charge of all things, we're not saying that he directly does all things, but we are saying nothing happens that isn't part of this great big plan that's going to ultimately bring glory to him, and the good is going to win in the end. Number three. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Taking everything we just said from number two, we don't want to see that as such a hard, fast rule that God has to work through other means. He does do some things that, at least from our point of view, appears to be totally direct. When Jesus of Nazareth turns water to wine just by saying to the servants there, draw some of that water, and by the time, it, the few feed they took it to get it to the, the Toastmaster, and it was the best wine, there's no natural explanation for that. There's no law of nature. Actually, it's, it's contrary to everything we understand in our science. And that was something I believe, that's what a, I think a miracle is, where God just cuts through everything and just does what he's determined to do. And then number seven, I'm going to skip some of these. Number seven, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. We're at the heart of this great plan. And again, I just, I'm amazed at that. Even if, even if we left sin out of the picture, and we never get to leave sin out of the picture, do we? That's, that's you know, our, we've got, that's our problem. But just as little finite creatures in this vast universe, and he's planned the whole thing with us in mind? That is really incredibly wonderful for us to contemplate. Now, I believe all of these points we've just summarized here from the confession are made here or implied here in 
our text in Isaiah 45. God is in control of this future pagan king. He makes that clear to his covenant people around 200 years ahead of time. He is in control of distant future battles and wars and who the winner will be. Uh, the destiny of nations is in God's control, and all of this is being organized and orchestrated for the good of God's covenant people, the people who trust in his holy word. Um, let, me, let me explain the background here. From the viewpoint of the prophet Isaiah, the Babylonian captivity has not yet taken place. And after the Babylonian captivity, there is going to be the return from Babylon on the part of the Jews who come because of a decree God causes a pagan king named Cyrus to issue, Cyrus king of Persia. Now, Persians not that great power yet. Not, not only Cyrus, but his parents, and I don't think even his grandparents have even been born yet. And God tells them that he's, he's already prophesied of the Babylonian captivity, and now he prophesies of the return from the exile, the post-exilic return, and who this pagan king is going to be, who's going to let them come back, and what his name is. So, though I don't believe in ongoing prophecy, I believe our confession's correct, that once the Bible was completed and, and uh, spread throughout, the Christian world, that you know, there is no modern-day prophecy. Just for the sake of illustration, uh, I'm going to use this, this uh, illustration. Probably the first church here in Pembroke was probably the Congregational Church, if it's like the other, the general rule. Imagine the pastor, whoever it was, in, uh, during Pre uh, President Washington's first administration, Imagine that pastor there making a prophecy, and he said, around 200 years from now, there's going to be a former movie star named Ronald Reagan. He's going to be elected president, and he's going to try to work at balancing the budget back in 1778. And, and, and he hits it right on. You know, he wouldn't even know what a movie star was. You know? And he, how could he have come up with the name? That's how incredible this is. That's very close to what this is here. So much so that when those who wanted to keep the name Christian but wanted to deny all the miraculous and all the supernatural, what we call the liberal theologians, for a long time they claimed that this could not really have been written by Isaiah when it claims to have been written because then you'd have to believe in, in prophecy. And then those... those Dead Sea Scrolls came and messed up all their liberal theories because we had copies that went way, way back. It turns out this was a real prophecy, and it is as, as amazing as it claims to be. Now, what comfort all of this is to God's people? Proverbs 21, verse 1 is where I uh, uh, took the, the title of my sermon, uh, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. We have, uh, by our engineering, we have changed the course of rivers. Uh, there was a river near where I pastored in Indiana as a young man, and uh, you couldn't have told it at all. I didn't know this until they told me that they'd actually changed the course of the river and they got more farmland and better 
better irrigation for the farmland, and they'd done it like a generation or two before. Even man can change uh, the course of a river. Well, the Lord can change a king's heart as easily as he can change the course of a river. In the same points made in our text this morning, we're given a particular example of that general principle. The point is that the God who is in control of all things, all the nations, all their rulers, is always working on behalf of his faithful covenant people. No matter how much opposition from the world we might face, as far as our earthly confession and witness, no matter what earthly trials we might be experiencing due to evil in high places, the one true and living God is in control. The one true and living God is working, always working on behalf of his own people. And he proves it here in this instance involving Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. So first, let's examine the text itself and follow the logic of the prophecy. In verses 1 through 3, Jehovah is prophesying of Cyrus and the military success that God would give to him. Now remember, this is about 150, 200 years before it happens. Okay, And it really happened, like it says here. You can read it in the Bible. You can read it in the secular histories written back in the ancient world. Jehovah again here refers to Cyrus as his anointed, the one chosen by God, divinely appointed to do a certain task in the future, again, long before Cyrus was born or even his parents or grandparents. Jehovah affirms that he will hold Cyrus's right hand, which speaks of giving Cyrus success in all his labors, victory in all his battles. This is not to say that Cyrus will himself recognize that it's God giving him the victory. He will not recognize it, but that will not change the reality. Jehovah will allow Cyrus as king of Persia to conquer other nations. They will not be able to, to successfully defend themselves. And you can just imagine Cyrus thinking, man, what a, man, am I on a hot streak here. Every country I come to, they capitulate, and I win, and I defeat them. And he doesn't know that it's not because he's such a, a smart general or because he's so powerful or his army is so much better than everybody else's or the Persians or the supermen or anything like that. God's carrying out his plan. God's making this happen. These other countries will not be able to successfully defend themselves. God will loose the armor of kings to open before Cyrus the double doors so the gates will not be shut. That means that the kings of these other nations will have no military success. They will not be able to keep Cyrus and his army from riding into their capital cities in victory. Why? Because God has determined far ahead of time the victory of Cyrus over these many other nations and kings. Verse 2 affirms that Jehovah will enable Cyrus and his army to push through any obstacle that stands in their way. High places will be leveled. Bronze gates with bars of iron will not be able to keep Cyrus out. What God has determined, no opposition by mankind or nature can nullify. In verse 3, God will give Cyrus the secret and hidden treasures of these kings, his plunder, you see, Cyrus's plunder. As if this is Cyrus's pay from the Lord for doing the Lord's work. Even though he doesn't know, it's the Lord's work he's doing. And all the, the reason for all of this is given in the last part of verse 3, that you may know that I, Jehovah, who am calling you by name, 
See far ahead of time. I am the God of Israel. That is, that the one true God is the God who has revealed himself to the nation of Israel. Jehovah God, or Yahweh, the great I Am. All the other so-called gods are dumb and dead idols. And Cyrus would understand this if he, just, if, if he could just reason it out. His very existence, his many victories, were all foretold by this true God of Israel, who alone is obviously in charge. In verses 4 through 6, Jehovah will bring all this to pass with regard to Cyrus for the sake of his covenant people, for the good of Israel, his people, to strengthen their faith in their God, the true God. In verse 4, though Cyrus does not know the true God, yet the true God is going to call Cyrus by name, by prophecy, far in advance, by providential circumstances at the time of fulfillment. And this is... and will be the case even though Cyrus doesn't know the true God in a saving way. I don't know if Cyrus ever came to know God in a way of salvation. He's not down in history as a, as a nice guy. Well, almost all these, these emperors were not nice guys. You know, they, most of them were, what was the term we used? Benevolent despot. Few of them were benevolent despots. You know, they were just despots. And they were, they were usually cruel, and he was, he was known for being pretty rough. I don't know if he ever came to know God in a way of salvation. But I do know that these things really occurred, as the, as the prophet prophesies here so far in advance. And God is going to do all of this, the calling of Cyrus, giving Cyrus victory over other nations for the sake of Jacob, his servant, that is, Israel, his elect, or his chosen one. You know, God is predestined to save all those whom he has given to Jesus Christ. We see this in the gospel according to John. And so there are the elect or the chosen of God whom God will save by his grace in Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was an earthly theocracy, an earthly nation governed by God in covenant relationship with Jehovah. The church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is an eternal and spiritual theocracy. Jesus is our Lord and our King. And we are in covenant relationship with Jehovah by Christ's blood and righteousness. For post-exilic Israel's sake, Cyrus was raised up and given victory over these other nations so, he could, so the Jews could come back to their promised land. For the sake of those whom God has chosen for eternal life, Christ is raised up and given victory over sin and death and hell. And it's all for the sake of God's covenant people. Now, when I, when I bring in Christ and, and us here, uh, I am anticipating where the text is going to go. Okay, we move on through chapter 5 into chapter 46. We move from Cyrus, this anointed of God who gets these military victories and thereby God's uh, earthly theocracy is allowed to come back to the promised land 200 years from the time the prophecy is given. And there's the greater anointed of the Lord that we're going to move to, the servant of the Lord that's a greater servant of the Lord than Cyrus, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection uh, gives us victory. So I've not really um, wrongly brought that into my message this morning. I've just anticipated where the text is going to go. Verse 5 Everything he says here about Cyrus proves that Jehovah is the true God, that the God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe, 
is Jehovah God, that there's no other God. He alone is God. And verse 5, because he is the one true God, he will gird or equip Cyrus, that is strengthen, equip Cyrus for victory, even though Cyrus doesn't know or acknowledge or recognize Jehovah. Do you notice he says more than once this idea that Cyrus doesn't know me? You know, this. it's not like God gave a, a general prophecy. Some guy named Cyrus someday is going to do this, and 200 years later, uh, the parents, you know, of some guy said, let's name him Cyrus. We heard about this prophecy of the Jews. Let's name him Cyrus. And Cyrus grows up and thinks, I've got to do all of this. I can make it all happen. Cyrus doesn't know anything about this. And, and uh, his parents didn't know anything about this prophecy. And yet here, it's all fulfilled right down uh, to the smallest detail. Why? Verse 6, so that people from all over the world will know and confess that there is no other God besides Jehovah God of the Bible. That he is Jehovah, the great I am, and there is no other God besides him. Now, do you know this? And probably all of you in this room do. But we know that many in modern or postmodern America deny this. That there is a God who is who he is. And for them, if they even believe in God, it's the, the God I want to believe in. You know, what kind of God do I choose to believe in? Which, of course, is when you think about it, it's another form of atheism without, without a self-realization that that's what it is. See, atheism, the denial that there is a God, what we've historically meant by that is you deny that there is a God who is in and of himself. There is a true God who exists whether we believe in him or not. And so if God is only what, what comforting thought I want to think, if I want to believe in a God who just loves us all and doesn't matter what we do, and I, I think that's the way to do it, to, to choose to believe in a God that sounds good to me, I'm not believing in a real God who exists in and of himself. I'm just, I'm, it's, it's a form of self-worship is what it is. I, I create this concept of a God who really looks quite a bit like me. And then I say I worship him. And uh, is that the way we approach the idol of God? Do we argue with what's being said here, or do we understand that the, there is this true and living God, and he's given evidence of that? And the reason we've not seen the evidence is because of our sinful darkness. And when the Holy Spirit enables us to see the evidence, it's very clear this is the one true and living God. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting from the east to the west, all throughout the day, all over the world, Jehovah's people will know that he alone is, in, is God. And then uh, he, we, I close my sermon as far as the text this morning with verse 7, uh, where he, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. By the way, the word well-being there is the normal word for peace. But using well-being brings out the fact that when they, when they pronounced peace upon one another, it was, a, it was kind of a, uh, it included a lot. It included kind of everything being put in its place in my life. If I had God's shalom, if I had his peace, you know, so they, they've translated it here, well-being. But the point here in verse 7 is God's in charge of all events. He forms light. He, he makes peace. He creates darkness and calamity. He's behind it all ultimately. He forms light and makes peace or makes well-being. 
He enables sinners in their state of spiritual darkness to see the truth and turn to him and be reconciled to him as he works faith by his Holy Spirit in their hearts. For we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Even on the natural level, he's the one who created the light of the solar system in the beginning. He's the one who, when he made us in his image, gave us the light of reason as mankind. He gives peace between nations and peaceful times for individuals, families, and larger groups. He brings about reconciliation not only between sinners and himself, but also peace between sinners in our human relationships. But he also is the God who creates darkness and calamity. He closes the minds of those who reject his word, as we can see back in chapter 44 of Isaiah. They choose darkness, and he gives them what they choose. Now, this is an amazing thing that sinners will complain. Uh, you know, if, if sinners will complain that, that you know, God doesn't do things the way he wants them to happen, and they choose not to believe, and they choose what he calls darkness, and then if they end up in hell in the end, there's something wrong with God. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said that those in hell are going to get exactly what they, they said they wanted. But in their sinful foolishness, they didn't realize what it was they were asking for. And uh, here they choose darkness. He gives them what they choose. They're unable to see the truth. They're unable to turn to him. And so they experience calamity, both God's temporal judgments in this world, and if they do not repent and turn to him in time in Christ, eternal calamity in the next world. When sinful mankind is too blind to see the right way to go, and this leads, as it does, to wars and conflicts and calamities, this is because God has ordained it and brought it to pass as the just penalty for our self-chosen sin. Who is going to bring about exile and destruction for God's covenant people in the Babylonian exile? Jehovah God, whom they've sinned against. Who's going to restore them and bring them back and cause this pagan king Cyrus to issue a decree for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? The same God, for he alone is God, and he alone is in control. Who destroys the reprobate for their self-chosen sin and darkness, the one true God whom they've rejected? Who saves the elect by opening their eyes and enabling them to see their need for Jesus Christ and turn to him as Savior? The same God. It is he, Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, who does all these things. And that is the point of our text. What then do we learn about the true God from this text? Let me give you just a few things, then I'll close. Number one, he is Jehovah God. The true God is Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He tells us this, and in many other prophecies, hundreds of prophecies, he tells us this, these things ahead of time, and he brings them to pass at his appointed time, and he says, this proves that I alone am, am truly God. No one else can do this. There's actually a place coming up in Isaiah where God says, okay, I've never told anybody this before. Because I'm not going to have you claim that, that you knew it before, or that your false gods had said this. No, I'm, this is new right now, not new for God, but new in his revelation. So when it comes to pass, you can't claim that you already knew it. He's emphasizing the objectivity of his self-revelation to us, particularly to us as covenant people. And if you worship and serve any God but the God of the Bible, you're sinning against the only true God, the God who created you for himself. 
you are invited to receive life in Christ. But my friend, you are also commanded, and I am commanded to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. It's both an invitation, a sweet and gracious invitation, and it's a very firm and clear command. And we sin if we don't believe the gospel, because this is the true God. Secondly, the true God is in control of all things, all human beings, and all that happens in his universe. And again, he proves us by naming people before they even exist, and by determining who they and what they will be and do. And if we refuse to turn to him, then our refusal to turn to him and, and what it brings upon us is his predetermined just penalty for our sin. If we turn to him by trusting in his servant, Jesus Christ, it is by his almighty grace alone because he has ordained and savingly called us according to his eternal plan and sovereign purpose. He is in control of all our circumstances, all the circumstances of the universe. More particularly, number three, the true God is in charge of all the nations and who rules over them at any given time. There is no king or president or prime minister or dictator in charge of any nation or any people ever who is not under the control of King Jesus. King Jesus rules over all kings and prime ministers and presidents according to his eternal purpose. If they're evil or if they're good, if they're just or if they're unjust, if they're efficient or if they're fools, God has appointed them. He has established them, usually according to normal circumstances under his providential control in our country by election, usually, and is using them for the ultimate good of his covenant people. And I think this is the most important task for genuine faith. Will we trust the God of the Bible to be in charge during those times when things look so bad? You know, if you're a Democrat and some Republicans in office, you don't like how things are going, are you, are you going to trust your God that he knows what he's doing? And if you're a Republican and some Democrats in office and you don't like how things are going, you're going to trust God that he's still in control? Because that's, that's an implication off of this text. He's in charge. And then fourthly, the God of the Bible, according to his inscrutable and eternal purpose, has determined who will be rich and successful or poor and defeated. I'm going to get this more personal now to us. The psalmist tells us that victory is not dependent on the military ability of a nation in the end of the day, but on God giving victory or defeat to whom he will. The songs of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Have you noticed how it's the same song? Not word for word, but thought for thought. If you've ever, never done this, First Samuel is that chapter 1 or 2, chapter 2, I think, and then in the Gospel of Luke, bring together Mary's uh, song to the Lord when she's uh, with Elizabeth and uh, Hannah's song to the Lord after Samuel's born. It's the same theme. And this is what they say. Remember, these are poor, humble, faithful Jewish girls, and they've been enabled to, to uh, have these children. There's a miracle involved in both cases. The biggest one is the virgin conception. But and for Hannah to conceive when she was barren, that's a miracle. And what do they talk about? That riches and advancement come from the Lord, that poverty and disgrace and demotion comes from him too. So he's not just in charge of nations, but of all individuals. 
And all of this is planned and worked out according to God's infinite goodness, justice, wisdom, and truth. You can't just, Christian, you can't just look at the immediate situation and understand and appreciate this. We are a people of faith. We're waiting uh, for the, the conclusion where we will see the big picture and it will all be plain that, that this was done for the sake of God's people and for the sake of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And at times things appear to be so contrary to God's goodness and justice. And what does he tell us? He says, I want you to trust me and trust my word. And when I say all things work together for good, if you love me, I want you to believe that. And it's easy to believe that if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, if things are going well for you. But that, does, that brings some glory to God. But when it really brings glory to God is when things are not going well for you. And you still hold fast to the truth that he's working all things together for good. It's all by faith. Later it will be seen and understood openly by God's people, by those saved by grace. But for now he calls upon us to trust his word because his son died for us and so has proven his continual goodwill towards us. And let me just close here my fifth uh, application. We, the church of Jesus Christ, then, and I think we see it here in this text within its, its whole context, are at the center of God's eternal plan. All things work together for our good. All things are for our eternal advancement. Even who is president or king or prime minister, when and where they are king, and whether there's light or darkness, peace or calamity. And again, we have to exercise that gift of faith given us by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, apart from taking God at his word, we will not be steady and settled in our conviction of his goodness and justice and mercy and all that happens. For the sake of God's covenant people, times, good times often come to unbelievers. Don't we see that in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot? What was it? Nine more guys like Lot who were believers? And God would have spared the whole place at that time. Do you ever sit and think about how incredible? That, that was a metropolis there. And God said, I'd spare the whole place for the sake of, there were ten righteous people there. I wouldn't kill them right now. Think of, think, of, think of all the good that comes to the non-Christians, all the good that came to you when you were a non-Christian, if, if you were converted later in life. And it was because you inhabited the same space as Christians do. It's for our sake all the goodness is here. Now, that's, that's, if you've never thought about that, it's, that's another thing. You, you sit and contemplate, you think, wow, it's hard, to, it's hard to even take in. So think of the irony when non-Christians persecute Christians. If it wasn't for those Christians they are persecuting being in the world, God would have sent them to hell a long time ago. This is... This is what we see here. God does everything for the sake of his people. Do you see how important God's covenant people, his blood-bought churches to God? This is incredible to those of us who know we've been saved only by his grace and not for any goodness in us. What amazing grace. And again, I've applied this more fully than just Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. That's where the prophecy is going to go. This is finally about Jesus Christ and his church. Those who trust in him, by him repent of their sins. All things are controlled by God for our good. What a promise and what comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
what you tell us in regard to the good you have for us, not only now, but especially the ultimate good that is ours in Christ and your whole eternal purpose for us in Christ. We cannot take it all in. We cannot uh, appreciate it like we ought. For it is such an incredibly huge promise that you've made to us when you say all things will work together for our good. But help us to grow in your grace day by day and more and more be able to lay hold of this promise in a very practical way so that we might more and more bring glory to you by our confidence in you. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.